This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. If you do not have a Bible with you, just raise your hand up in the air. We want to make sure everyone has a copy of God's Word in front of them. We could just put it up on the screen. Uh, We want to make sure that you can actually see it on the paper uh, so you know that I'm not making it up because we're going to hear some pretty incredible things today. If you don't know where the book of Jude is, it can be hard to find. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. Just go all the way to the back, find the book of Revelation, and then just go right before it. It's the book right before the last one. There's only one chapter in Jude, and so it's really not right to say that there's even any you know, chapters. We're just going to call out the verses. Uh, today we're going to be in verses 1 and 2. And this morning we're going to be starting a series in this book that we'll be in for the next five weeks leading up to Easter. And to get us ready for what God is going to say to us in this book, I want to share with you a story. There once was a king who had to hire a carriage driver for his children. And so in order to find the best driver, he sent out a proclamation to all his land that, that he wanted the various provinces of his land to send their best drivers to his castle for a tryout to see who would be worthy of transporting his children. The king lived in a castle at the top of a mountain that had a very treacherous path that led up to it. It was very steeply inclined, and not only that, but on one side there was a steep cliff that dropped off about 5,000 feet. And so transporting these children up this place was indeed an important task. The three top drivers assembled at the top of the mountain, and the king said, all right, I want to see you drive down this mountain and how well you can do. The first driver goes, and to show off his skill, goes as fast as he possibly can. And he stays the whole time only six inches away from the side of the cliff, showing both his bravery and his ability to control this team of horses. He breaks the record. No one had ever driven this fast down this mountain before. It was an incredible feat of skill. The next rider then gets up. And she does even better. She drives even faster, beating the previous driver's record. And she gets even closer to the edge, a mere three inches away from the treacherous drop, showing her incredible bravery and skill. The third driver then takes his turn. And he does not go fast at all, but drives very, very, very slow. And he does not get close at all to the side of the cliff, but stays as close as he can to the mountainside. The drivers laugh at him, thinking that he is some type of coward. The king is also confused, and he asks the driver, why did you choose to drive down the mountain this way? The driver replied, it is not because I am scared of danger, but because if I'm going to be driving the king's children... They deserve my most careful attention to their protection. Precious things are worth protecting from dangers that threaten their safety. And as we come to the book of Jude, we're going to see that Jude has some very sober and serious things to say about dangers that the Christians were facing in the early church. And I believe this is a timely word for us because these are dangers that are still very much alive today. And Jude is going to be warning us about these dangers, 
not to encourage cowardness in us, but because he's going to talk about some things that are so precious that they're worth protecting. One commentator has said that the book of Jude contains some of the most beautiful descriptions of the Christian faith in the entire Bible. As I've been living with this letter for the past several months in preparation for this series, I would have to agree. There are some beautiful things that we are going to see in this book, beautiful things that are worth protecting from danger. And so we're calling this series Keeping the Faith. Because that's what Jude wants us to do. He wants us to keep, to guard, to protect, to fight for the beauty of what God has said the Christian faith is all about. In the coming weeks, we will see threats to the faith and how we are to protect against them. But today, Jude starts us in these first two verses by showing us the value of what it is that we are to be protecting, that we are to be fighting for, that we are to be keeping, that we are to be contending. And so let's turn to God's word, and may his word speak to our hearts. Jude, verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Praise God for his holy word. May he be with us now through the preaching of it. All glory be to Christ. These first two verses break out into two fairly easy categories to see. Verse 1 talks about who we are in Jesus, our identity. Called, beloved, kept. And the verse 2 talks about what we have in Jesus as a result of that identity. Mercy, peace, and love. Now, we need to note that Jude does not pray for these Christians to be given mercy, peace, and love. He doesn't pray for them to be given to them. He prays for these things to be multiplied to them. See, these Christians had already received mercy, peace, and love. They didn't need to be given these things, but they needed to have their experience of these things that they'd already been given. They need to have these things multiplied to them in their hearts. You see, these people understood the concept of mercy, the idea of not being treated as we deserve. They understood the concept of peace, being at rest and not fearful and living with a full sense of satisfaction and wholeness and wellness. And they understood the concept of being loved. But there was a gap between what they understood and what they were actually experiencing. And so they didn't need to be given these things. They needed to be multiplying these things more in their hearts. There was a gap between what they knew in their heads and what they experienced and truly believed in their hearts. And I think how often we can struggle with the same thing. We can understand the concept of mercy, but then we mess up. And will God actually be merciful to me? We can doubt it. And we can live in shame and guilt. We say things like, I'm just really struggling to forgive myself. If we truly believe that God mercifully forgave us, then we wouldn't struggle to forgive ourselves. But we don't believe that, and so we do struggle to forgive ourselves sometimes. We can understand conceptually the idea of peace, but we can still consistently live in fear, can't we? And we can understand the idea of love. But then we can also look in the mirror with all our faults, flaws, and regrets, 
and wondered, can God really love me? And so like the people Jude was writing to, we need our experience of mercy, peace, and love multiplied to us. And here's how that happens. There's a reason that Jude starts by affirming who these Christians are in Jesus before he prays that what they've been given by Jesus would be multiplied to them. Did you see that? He starts by first saying who they are before he prays that they experience more of what they've already been given. And here's really the big idea of what Jude is doing. Enjoying what we've been given by Christ comes from knowing who we are in Christ. Enjoying, experiencing, richly having in our innermost beings the delightful knowledge of all that we've been given of Christ, that comes from not a greater view of ourselves, not an ability to look in our, the mirror and practice self-talk and you know, positive self-affirmation. No, 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 no. That's a, that's, a, that's a path that will lead nowhere fast. No, no, enjoying what we've been given by Christ doesn't come from thinking great thoughts about ourselves, but rather great thoughts about Christ and who we are in Him. Enjoying what we've been given by Christ comes from knowing who we are in Christ. And so I've been telling this morning's sermon, a beautiful identity. A beautiful identity. I just want to walk through, really, this first few identity markers that Jude talks about so that we might see this beautiful identity of who we are in Christ that would then lead us to enjoy more of what we've been given by Christ. So first, first identity marker. Before Jude addresses the people that he's writing to, he gives an actually incredible and very instructive identification of himself. He calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And so if you're taking notes, that's your first identity marker, servant. Now in the ancient world, there were two kinds of servants. There was temporary servants. It's often someone who became indebted to you and so they could work for you to pay off their debt. That's what most servants were. But some servants, after working for their master for a certain period of time, would choose to stay in their master's service forever. Because if you found a good master who would take care of you and protect you and be kind to you and provide for you, then that servant wouldn't want to leave that situation and risk falling into debt to someone who might actually end up being a harsh master. And so the servant would brand themselves as what's called as a bond servant, which means a servant for life to a particular master. And that's the word that Jude is using here to identify himself. He's not just calling himself a general servant. He's actually calling himself in the original Greek, if you read it, it says a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jesus is his master, and he wants to live in service to no one else. Now, that's really amazing as we consider who Jude is. He identifies himself also as the brother of James. James needed no more introduction than just that because James was one of the most famous people in the early church. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, as we read about in Acts chapter 15 and Galatians chapter 1, which was the biggest church during that time. So he was just James. Everyone knew James. So Jude says, I'm his brother. And in Galatians chapter 1 verse 19, we also read that James is identified as the Lord's brother, which means that he is the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different brother. Mark 6 tells us that one of the things that made it hard for people in Jesus' hometown to believe that Jesus was the Son of God was because they knew his family, specifically because they knew his brothers. And so Mark chapter 6 says this, 
On the Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, he meaning Jesus. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Here's here's the equivalent of what they're saying. How could the Son of God be related to those jabronis? <laughs> right? right? He's like, there's multiple brothers of Jesus listed. And it's like, I don't see how Jesus could be related to them. They're a bunch of knuckleheads. Now, as you read that list, you're like, well, I don't see Jude's name on there. Actually, it is because Jude is short for Judas. Kind of like how Jeff is short for Jeffrey. But no one calls me Jeffrey unless my mom and she's upset at me. And it's not a good situation if that happens. And so it's not surprising that Jude would want to go by Jude instead of Judas. Uh, There's kind of like two names that you don't name your children, right? Hitler and Judas. You know, like kind of the two worst people in all of history. And so Jude, it's not surprising he'd want to go by his shorter name. He'd want to go by Jude instead of Judas. And so Jude, being a brother of James, was also what? He was a half-brother of Jesus. And here's here's why this is significant. Here's what we know about Jesus' brothers. When Jesus was alive... None of them believed that he was the Son of God. John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us they wanted to put him away because they thought he was nuts. Now, as someone who has some brothers myself, I'm very sympathetic to their feelings about Jesus. I mean, I don't know how many people here have brothers, but uh, if your brother said, I'm the Son of God, uh, there's only one response that a good, well-respected brother should have for that, and that's to punch them in the face, right? Um, It's like, no one could beat up my brothers unless it's me. That's kind of how it works between brothers, right? Uh, I mean, it's just, you, you don't have a lot of respect for your brother. I'm sure they had seen Jesus wake up in the morning with fuzzies in his eye that he had to clear out, right? Jesus, fully God, but also fully man. And being fully man, that means at one point he was a boy. And anyone here who has boys know that boys can do some pretty stupid things. Not sinful things, Jesus without sin, but that doesn't mean that he was not without stupid, right? And so I'm sure that he and his brothers probably did what I grew, did with my, my brothers growing up. They probably had, you know, armpit farting contests, right? Like, who can get the loudest sound out, you know, and make mom really jump? My wife uh, grew up only with a sister, and so there's regularly things she sees our sons doing, and she's like, what on earth is going, going on? I'm like, listen, sweetie, I told you, boys are crazy. That's just how it rolls. That's just, that's just how it is, right? And so it's not surprising that Jesus' brothers would think he's nuts for saying that he is the son of God. But when they saw their brother put to death, when they saw him laid to rest in a tomb, and that heavy stone get rolled in front of his grave, and then when they saw their brother come back to life just like he said he would to prove that he's the God of life, it was then that they realized this is not just our brother, this is our Lord. And so while many people in the New Testament identify themselves as servants of the Lord, what's behind this declaration of Jude is the amazing grace of God. You see, what Jude is saying, he is saying that I used to live in unbelief. I used to think my brother was crazy. And he should have written me off and left me that way. He should have left me for who I used to be. But by the grace of God, who I used to be is no longer who I now am. He's saying instead of being a a denier, I'm a believer. Instead of being a doubter, I'm a follower. He's saying, I used to think Jesus was just my brother, but now I know he's my Lord and I'm his servant. And so Jude is saying here that I'm writing this to you as one who has 
no longer been left to be who I used to be. And if you're here and you are a believer in Jesus, as he's your Lord, that's your same story. You are here because God has not left you as you used to be. You are here because by the grace of God, he knows how to make deniers and doubters into his servants. What a beautiful thing it is to be called a servant of Jesus Christ. To be a servant is to be someone who's been changed by amazing grace. And enjoying what we've been given by Jesus comes from knowing who we are in Jesus. Friends, we are servants of the Lord. Second, Jude goes on to say to these people that those, those who are called, these are, these are called people. That's your second identity marker, called. In Scripture, we see this concept of calling talked about in two different ways. First, there is a general call. And so Jesus gives this in Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is an open invitation. Come to me. God's calling and inviting. Like, will you come to him? It's God's general call that he makes known to everyone. The heavens declare the glories of God, Scripture tells us. The stars shout out a call from the Lord. Believe in your creator. That's a general call. But far more often, Scripture talks about what's known as God's effectual call. This is the call that God purposes to have an effect on a specific person. And so 1 Corinthians chapter, 12, chapter 1, verses 23 through 24 Paul writes and says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power and the wisdom of God. See, Paul's saying, he's like, Christ is a stumbling block, right? People don't believe in him. But to those who are called, something is changed in them so that Christ is no longer a stumbling block to them, but it becomes to them the very power and wisdom of God. It's not just Paul who writes about this. Peter writes about this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, he's saying you were in darkness, but God has called you out of that. His calling had an effect and that has brought you out of your darkness and into the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so I think Thomas Schreiner, commentator and theologian, says it very accurately when he writes, God's effectual calling is not merely an invitation that human beings can reject, but it is a summons that overcomes human resistance and effectually persuades them to say yes to God. In other words, God's effectual call is not like what we do when we get a call, do I want to take this or not? For me, the answer is usually no. It's like, you know, if you have time to call me, you have time to text me. Just send me a text. Make it a lot easier, right? But God's effectual call is not like that. It's not a call that can be rejected. It's a call that creates life. Because Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are born dead in our sins. Maybe we, we believe in God, but we're born without desire to want to follow him. We're born without desire to want to live for him. We are born dead in our sins, just wanting to do our own thing. And you know, it, it doesn't really matter if you give dead people an opportunity to respond. They're not going to. 
You can go to a graveyard with all the dinner invitations you want. You can say, hey, come, all you who are hungry, come and eat. Ain't no corpse getting up out of the grave and responding to your invitation, no matter how good your gumbo is, right? Like, it's not going to happen. What we need, what we need and what we've been given is more than just a general call. We need an effectual call. Because we were dead in our sins. We could not respond to God's general call, come. But praise God that he does not only give a general call, but that he gives an effectual call that raises the dead. And if you are here and your heart beats for Jesus, if you believe in him and love him and treasure him and truly want to follow him, it is because God has taken his resurrection paddles and hooked them up to your sin-deadened hearts and has sent a pulse through you, making you come alive to Christ. We are here because we are called by the gracious love of God. Friends, no one's a Christian because we're smarter. No one's a Christian because we figured something out that no one else did. No one's a Christian because we've just been gifted with more faith. No, the only reason we are followers of Jesus is because just like when Jesus showed up at the tomb of Lazarus and called out his name and that dead man came out out of the grave, so too he shows up in our life and he has called out our name and we came up out of our grave of spiritual death to eternal life in Christ. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's because God knows you personally and he chose to call your name effectually. And I truly believe that there are people listening to this or maybe this is being recorded so maybe you'll listen to this many years in the future and God has you listen to this because he is calling you right now. Maybe you've never believed before or, or maybe you have believed in Jesus as someone who exists but you've been living life Honestly, trusting in yourself. Your, your hope for getting to heaven is, well, I'm a good person who does good things. Friends, if you believe you're a good person who does good things and that's your hope for salvation, then you're not trusting in Jesus regardless of what you believe about him existing or not. The only way to be saved is to admit your spiritual bankruptcy, that you have nothing to offer God except your sin, but he has everything to give you in Jesus. The only way to be saved is to believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place and rose again from the grave to prove that he truly is God. The only way to be saved from what we deserve for our sins is to believe in what Jesus has done to die for our sins and to rise for our life. We are saved by faith alone and Jesus alone. And I believe that God has you listening to this because today is the day of your salvation. Where God wants you to place your trust in Jesus. You're like, well, I guess I can only do that if I'm called. How do I know if I'm called? Well, how do you know you're called is if you respond to his call. How do you know you're called is if you respond to his call. You don't sit here in some kind of intellectual gymnastics waiting to figure things out. No, respond to his call today. And you will know that you've been called. Not by some preacher talking. I can't do anything to persuade anyone to believe anything. I can sell copiers. I can't sell Jesus. That's something that God does in your life. And I pray today would be the day that he does do it. Today would be the day where you respond to Christ and truly put your faith in him and join ranks with those who are servants of Christ to those who are called. And if you've done that, that's how God sees you today. He sees you as those that he chose to know specifically 
not just a general call to the world. No, he, he called out your name. He knows your name. Ephesians 1, it was written on his heart before the foundation of the world. That's how loved you are by God. Oh, how beautiful it is to say that we are called. What a beautiful identity it is. We are servants, we are called, and we are next beloved in God the Father. Man, that word beloved, it means more than just loved. It's the state of living consistently as the recipient of love. It's not just a one-time feeling. It's a continual act. It's a love that is calm and is settled upon a person, and it will not, indeed it cannot, ever be removed. And so someone told me once that I can believe that God can love the world, but I just have a really hard time believing that God can love me. Like we can get used to this broad idea that God is loving, and we like the idea of a loving God, but it's a lot harder for us to put ourselves in that picture for probably a bunch of reasons. One, because we don't always feel his love. It's not like God comes and hugs us and tucks us in at night, right? God's love can seem intangible. It can seem to be unseen. And two, if we're honest, I don't think we always feel worth loving, do we? God knows everything, then can't we feel there's certainly a lot of parts of us that he must not like that much? How could a God love me after all I do? After all that I just even think? And so it can be hard to connect to God's love until we see more and more how God's love is embodied in Jesus. How do you know the Father loves you? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Because God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You, you, you want a tangible experience of being God's beloved? You want to you see it? See it in Jesus. As he willfully hands himself over to be executed. Roman governor Pilate said, why aren't you scared of me? Don't you know that I can kill you? Jesus said, no authority would have been given to you unless it was given from above. In other words, you can't kill me. I'm doing this to myself. See God's love as Jesus is led out into the courtyard. And he's blindfolded and struck on the head again and again by mocking spite from the soldiers saying, prophesy who's hitting you. Oh, he knew the name of every single one of them. And he could have spoken their names and showed off his divine knowledge and they would have fallen down in fear and the whole ordeal would have been over. But love stopped his voice. Because someone had to pay for our sin. And God in his love didn't want it to be you. And so in love, Jesus endured the Romans' whips as they beat him. 39 lashes, exposing ribs, leaving him as the prophet Isaiah foretold, beyond even resemblance of a man. In love, Jesus allowed his hands and feet to be nailed to a cross. His power was what was holding together the atoms of the spikes that were crushing him with pain. And in love, Jesus hung there, bloodied, battered, beating, 
gasping for breath, and people gathered at the foot of his cross, jeering at him to save himself. And again, he could have. One word, and the voice that made the world could have unmade everything and blasted the cosmos apart. But in love, he did not say anything. He stayed and he suffered. God's wrath, God's justified anger for the atrocities of humankind done against humankind. For your sin and for my sin. And what we deserve to experience for our sin. For an eternity in hell. That judgment gets poured out on Jesus. And he takes it all in in his eternal being. And we're told that the earth shook. And the sky itself went dark. Because the sun could not shine on the horror of that day. When the father crushed the son. And we question God's love. Friends, what more could the Father do to show you that you are His beloved? He didn't withhold even His own Son's death for us. It came down to between crushing His Son with His wrath or loving us. He chose to crush because he loves. Friends, you are loved by God. You are his beloved. When God sees you, he does not see a mistake. He does not see a regret. No, he sees the one that he died to save because he has chosen you to be his beloved. That's what God sees today. I don't care what you did this morning. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you're struggling with today. Friends, if you place your faith in Christ, you are the beautiful beloved of God. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't live in holiness. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue Righteousness and flee sin. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to get into all that. But friends, oh, we need to know who we are. You need to know who you are. You look in the mirror and you just see yourself. Friends, don't find your identity by looking in the mirror. Find your identity by looking at Christ. And see God's word over your life, which is you are his beautiful blood. Enjoying what we've been given by Christ comes from knowing who we are in Christ. We are servants, we are called, we're beloved, and we are kept for Jesus. God doesn't just love you. God is keeping you for Jesus. That word keep means to protect, to guard, to preserve. It's a major theme in the book of Jude. He, he starts his letter with it. It's actually how he's going to end his letter. He's going to say to him, now to him who's able to keep you. In between, Judah's going to say some strong stuff about dangers that we face and how we need to fight. He's going to talk about a lot of adversity, but he wants to make sure that we are grounded for that conversation by understanding that the adversity we face takes place underneath the promise of God's protection. And so we don't run scared. 
No, we live with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the God who keeps us. I had a friend who was a former Navy SEAL. He's one of the toughest guys I ever met. Uh, I was trying to get ready to play college basketball because I still had the delusion I could do that. And so my senior year, I trained with him. How our training sessions would start is we would warm up by pushing his pickup truck around a parking lot. Um, and it was my job, as he did it, to, to, to as he pushed this, park, uh, this, this car, uh, it was my job to punch him in the back as hard as I could. And he'd yell at me if I held back. Um, that's just kind of, you know, nuts that you have to be. I mean, I think in order to be a former Navy SEAL, you have to be a little bit nuts to do that kind of stuff that they're able to do. I mean, just the, the absolute toughest guy I've ever been, uh, ever been with. And I went to, end up going to college at Rutgers Camden. Uh, if you know anything about Camden, um, uh, there he's actually gotten a lot better. It's been built up, but I, I was there about, man, how long ago? I'm terrible at math. I'm going to do this on the spot. But like 15 years ago. I think it's about 15 years ago. Is that close to right? I don't know. I graduated in 07, whenever that was, 16 years ago. Um, and it was rough back then. It's okay now, but it was, it was pretty hood back then. Um, and so you could stay, like, they, they had, like, police that patrolled, like, the campus. You were fine if you stayed on campus, but you went off campus. Uh, there was, like, three different people that got knifed, uh, you know, my senior year. So it was just that kind of place off campus. And so one night, I, I was late at school, so I was actually speaking at an event, and this friend of mine came out to support me and, uh, and to, to, to hear me preach. It was my first sermon I actually ever gave. And, um, but because it was late at night, uh, I didn't live on campus. I lived at home uh, to save money. And so I, I, it was because it was late at night, I wasn't able to park on campus. All the spots were taken. And so I parked a few blocks off campus in one of the sketchiest parts. And so we're walking back from this event, and, and I think everything's going fine. But then I see, about a block away from where my car is, a, a group of gangbangers just hanging out in the corner. I mean, they're flying the Crip blood colors and everything. Like, this is, this is, this is the real deal. And uh, if it had just been me... I would have called an Uber. Uh, actually, they didn't have Uber 16 years ago, so I don't know what I would. I probably would have crashed at some friend's, you know, night in the dorm or just found a bench park somewhere that I could just sleep in. Like, I'm not walking past those guys uh, because, you know, I know myself well enough and I am a little suburban kid from Cherry Hill that knows nothing about how to get into a gang fight. Uh, but I had my friend with me. And I'm like, hey, man, I think we should turn around. And he's like, dude, like, we got this. And, uh, and I knew that, okay, yeah, this guy's, you know, probably killed more people than I even probably want to know. And so I think, that, yeah, we, 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 we got this. And I, I walked through and we walked to my car in safety because I knew my friend was able to keep me. My, my confidence was not myself. My confidence was in the one who I was with. Friends, do you know who is with you? The one who is with you is the one who made the world out of nothing. The one who is with you is the one who upholds the universe by the power of his will. I think God's able to keep you. I think God's able to protect you. And God will protect you because you're his servant, because you're the one he's called, because you're the one who is his beloved. He'll protect you because you're precious to him and he sees you as worth protecting. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't go through some scary stuff. This is certainly not a promise that God's going to make life easy for us. But this is a promise that God will protect us even when things get very, very hard for us. And I love that it says that we'll be kept for Jesus. That word for is, is a purpose clause. It's introducing the reason that we are, the purpose for why we are being kept, is not for the sake just of ourselves. No, the reason that we're ultimately being kept is we're being kept for Jesus. In other words, we're being kept for his praise, 
We're being kept because God the Father wants to make a big deal about his son and what his son has done. We're being kept by God because the Father wants to present us to Jesus as trophies of his redemptive grace. There's a day coming when God will say to Christ, this is Jeff whom your blood purchased and I've kept him for you so that you might know what your salvation has won. And that's true for you if you put your faith in Jesus as well. And when that happens, when those who have been kept for Jesus are presented to Jesus, all of heaven is going to break out in praise. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Salvation belongs to God. Revelation 5, Revelation 7. I remember when I got my first trophy. If anyone else remembers that. It was one of those little participation trophies, which I don't even believe in anymore. But, um, you know, I, it was just like a good job for showing up and not dying, I guess. But, like, as a kid, though, um, it, it was so sweet to get this. And, 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 and even though I actually, my first year when I got it, I just stayed on the side and cried and didn't even go onto the soccer field. Um, but, like, I still got this trophy, and it became precious to me. I was so proud of it. I took that trophy, and I showed it to my parents. I put it on my dresser bureau. I was six years old. Right? I lost all kinds of things. I mean, I literally lost my pants one day. <laughs> like, my mom came and picked me up at my friend's house, and she's like, where are your pants? She's like, I know I sent you with pants, but they're not here anymore. Like, can you talk to me? I don't know, Mom. We were playing, and they got wet, and I put them out. I don't know where they are. You know, I just I lost my pants. What can, you know, six-year-old things boys do. I lost everything, but I didn't lose that trophy. In my mind, I had worked hard for that trophy. I took pride in that trophy. And so I kept that trophy for the praise of myself. Friends, God has worked hard to win us. You are not a participation trophy. You've been won by the very blood of Jesus. And what God has worked hard to win, he will surely keep. You might go through some stuff. You might have some hard chapters in your life. You might even have some wandering chapters in your life. But the God who chose to love you is the God who's going to keep you. You've been saved by grace, and you're going to be kept by grace. It was grace that brought you safe thus far, and grace will lead you home. Which is why when we get to heaven, the song in heaven is not, yes, I made it. No, the song in heaven is, Revelation 5.12, worthy is the Lamb. The song in heaven is, Revelation 7.10, salvation belongs to God. Heaven is filled with the praise of Jesus as trophy after trophy is presented to him. And the Father says, look what I've kept for you. And so, friends, if you place your faith in Jesus, this is who you are and this is who you always will be by his grace. You were a rebel who has been made a servant. You were someone who is dead who has been called to life. You won't be someone who is judged because you are beloved. You won't be someone who gets lost because you will be kept. This is who we are in Jesus. And enjoying what we've been given by Jesus comes from knowing who we are in Jesus. When you know you've been made a servant, when you know you've been called from death to life, when you know that you are the beloved God and you are kept as a trophy of his salvation, then mercy is multiplied to you. Because the only way all those things could be our identity is because of the merciful nature of God. 
And when you know you've been made a servant, when you know you've been called from death to life, when you know you are the beloved God, when you know you are kept as a trophy of salvation, that fills your soul with peace. A sense of being at rest and calm and whole and full because no matter what happens to you, nothing can change who you are in Christ. And when you know you've been made a servant, when you know you've been called from death to life, when you know you are the beloved of God and kept as a trophy for Jesus, then you know you truly are loved by God because that's how he sees you. And so each of these things, mercy, peace, and love, they flow from knowing who we are in Christ. And so when we doubt them, when it seems too good to be true that we can receive mercy, when it seems that that we're so afraid and we feel like we can never be at peace, when we look in the mirror and we just can't believe that God could love us, friends, the knowledge of mercy, peace, and love can be multiplied to us through knowing who we are in Christ. How that knowledge gets from our head to our hearts is not by learning to think that we're great. It's not by learning for us to feel entitled that we somehow deserve those things. No, it's enjoying what we've been given by Jesus does not come from looking to ourselves, but looking to him and seeing who he says we are in him. Enjoying what we've been given by Christ comes from knowing who we are in Christ. And so Christ Church, know it. And believe it and enjoy it. Let's pray.